0: Visit slash future to learn more and support their cause. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work.
1: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
2: It got to the point where I was a uh, a heroin addict. It got about as bad as it could get. I honestly thought that I I was not put together correctly, and I lost hope for myself. I thought something was intrinsically wrong with me. Uh, I sort of was living my life like, unfortunately, I'm broken, and I'm going to live my life and come what may. But somewhere along the way, uh, that changed. And if it can change for me, it can change for, for anyone.
1: That's Cameron Douglas. He's the author of Long Way Home, an intimate memoir that recounts Cameron's descent into drug addiction and almost eight years in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons. Cameron's brutally honest account explores his relationship with his famous family, how he ended up addicted to heroin and selling crystal meth, how prison time forced him to change his life, and the difficulties of solitary confinement and re-entry into society. Cameron and I also have a connection, but not the kind of connection most people would brag about. Cameron Douglas was investigated, charged, and prosecuted by my former office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. That interview is coming up. Stay tuned.
0: Hi, my name is Anne. I'm from Englewood, New Jersey. I really have questions that have been bothering me. Maybe they have simple answers. If somebody in the State Department gets a subpoena, And the State Department says they cannot testify, but they received this subpoena. Why can't they make the decision to testify on their own and still not risk firing? I understand they could maybe resign and testify, but why can't they just reply to a subpoena, which is legal? Thank you.
1: guys. And thanks for your question. And it turns out a State Department official can obey a subpoena. And we've seen a parade of officials come in and testify before Congress, most notably... Yesterday, October 22nd, when the chief diplomat in Ukraine from the United States, Bill Taylor, who we've been talking a lot about and hearing a lot about, came in and testified for a lot of hours. That testimony, along with some other people's testimony, has come after the White House counsel's office sent a letter to the Congress basically saying, your impeachment inquiry is invalid. It's not founded on proper procedure. And so we're not going to cooperate at all. And various officials in the State Department and former officials from the State Department were asked to come testify. Some of them declined based on what the White House said before they issued subpoenas. And I think individual diplomats and other officials in the government have made decisions for themselves that they are not going to be held in contempt of Congress. And they're not going to evade the compulsion of a subpoena, and they have come forward. And I think that's a really important decision. And that's why I think some people have been using the phrase, the dam has broken because lots of folks are coming forward. Some people still are opposed to coming forward. It is, of course, even easier for someone who has left the government to decide to come in and testify, but we're seeing people both in and out come and do their duty. Here's a question from Howard in Plano, Texas that we received by email. That's a little bit putting the cart before the horse. But Howard asks, if when the House passes articles of impeachment and the Senate carries out its constitutional duty to hold a trial, Will there be Senate gallery tickets available to the public? If so, how can I get one? If I get two tickets, will you be my guest? (laughs) So let's see what happens with impeachment first. I think a lot of people predict in good faith that there will be articles of impeachment voted on and voted on favorably by the majority of the House. And Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, has said he will, in fact, hold a trial. He's talked about what that trial will look like, that the Senate will sit every day, six days a week. Still unclear what the procedure will be. There's a couple of precedents for it, but not a lot. And um, I would expect, although I was not in the Senate when this happened with Bill Clinton, but I would expect that as is often the case where the Senate does business, there are seats open to the public up top so they can gaze over into the Senate chamber and watch the proceedings. I would guess that those tickets would be a hot commodity and probably is helpful to know your home state senator to get a ticket like that or maybe stand in line. Uh, But if you get one, if you score one, Howard, I'm there with you. So folks, obviously the big news is the testimony of the chief diplomat in Ukraine from the United States, Bill Taylor, who testified at length yesterday. That news broke since Anne and I spent a lot of time on these issues on the Insider podcast. So a bunch of questions relating to Taylor's testimony, which was extensive. We don't have all the details of that testimony. We do have what looks like someone photographed page by page with a cell phone his opening statement, which has been circulated, and that's 15 pages single spaced. Uh, listener Catherine D'Angelo asks, heck of a lot of corroborating evidence in the Ukraine scandal reports on Taylor's testimony. At Preet Bharara, your thoughts on the quality and quantum of evidence accumulating here. Compare contrast to prosecutions you've led. Hashtag ask Preet. Similar sort of question. A similar kind of question comes in a tweet from listener assiduous Rabbit. It's the best kind of rabbit, probably. Hashtag ask Preet. Is Taylor's statement and testimony enough to impeach Trump? I know it's hard for people with all the work they have going on and real lives they have to live to read document after document. But this 15-page opening statement from Bill Taylor is pretty extraordinary. Uh, It sets forth his background as all these witnesses have come forward in anticipation, I think, of character assassination, sets forth their nonpartisan and bipartisan credentials, how long they've served the country. In Bill Taylor's case, it's been 50 years beginning as a cadet at West Point, and then lays out in clear detail the chronology of events leading up to and following the July 25th phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky, whose readout we have already seen, and which conversation prompted the whistleblower complaint, whose identity we don't yet know. So I believe that even before we had Bill Taylor's testimony, and we just had certain text messages, and we didn't have what we do now have, overwhelming proof of an inappropriate quid pro quo that there was enough to impeach Donald Trump. Based on the readout of the phone call, Another corroborating evidence that the president of the United States, and I've said this over and over again, and I think it's important to be clear about this, that the president of the United States asked a foreign leader to give him help to investigate an important political rival domestically. That itself is an abuse of power, and that itself is a reasonable, impeachable offense. Notwithstanding the fact that the one-time acting attorney general went on Fox News, I think yesterday, and weirdly said that an abuse of power is not a crime when everyone understands, even if you've never served as the attorney general, that exactly what the framers had in mind when they contemplated impeachment and explicitly put it in the Constitution, that it was an abuse of power that they were concerned about. So I think even before Bill Taylor's testimony, enough to impeach the president, and now going back to the question from Assiduous Rabbit, after the testimony of Bill Taylor, you have more than enough for, I think, succeeding and stronger articles of impeachment. He makes it very clear that not only was there a request for help in a domestic matter which was the investigation but that aid to the country and a meeting with the white house he makes it exceedingly clear aid to the ukraine and essential aid if not given in a timely fashion according to bill taylor would cause ukrainians to die because they needed that military funding to stave off attacks from russia that that aid and a white house meeting were conditioned on an announcement of an investigation into burisma and into the biden's so there'll be presumably an opportunity in public for supporters of the president to cross-examine and to test these statements by Bill Taylor. But if you see how detailed they are, how meticulous they are, and if you believe the reports, all of these recollections are backed up by contemporaneous notes that he took at the time and by other people's testimony. I think it's going to be very, very hard to put a dent in the conclusions that he draws and the picture that he paints. I think at some point it will be useful to see all the details of what his testimony was about. But you know, while we're talking about this issue of complaints about the process, bear in mind that behind closed doors, presumably Republicans on the various committees have had an equal opportunity to question Bill Taylor, to question his motives, to question his recollection, to question his conclusions about things. At the end of the day, the opening statement is very strong, but I think when you see all the testimony, including how uh, he answers questions and how He deals with people who are trying to undercut his testimony. That will be even more interesting. The other thing about Bill Taylor's testimony, by the way, that may or may not relate to impeachment is not just about this inappropriate quid pro quo between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. He also talks about something that's very disturbing, and he uses the word disturbing more than once. And he also says that John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, used the word disturbing and seems to have done so more than once. And it's this entire process of having, on the one hand legitimate State Department officials appointed by this administration who have foreign policy experience and are acting within the appropriate chain of command to try to further American national security and to strengthen the alliance with Ukraine as a longstanding, important strategic partner. And then separate from that, you have what some people call shadow foreign policy, and he calls an irregular diplomatic process that's run by people including Rudy Giuliani, that's at odds with what the stated American foreign policy is and strategic partnership should be all about. And that is something, if probed more, may form the basis for, you know, a more general article of impeachment. At a minimum, it should cause a lot of people alarm. And we have a person like John Bolton, who's pretty aggressive in how he thinks foreign policy should be conducted and how, how much leeway the president of the United States has to do what he wants. The fact that he referred to this craziness as a drug deal with Giuliani and wanted no part of it, and abruptly ended a meeting, according to Bill Taylor, when this kind of quid pro quo was discussed, tells you a lot. Bill Taylor also describes John Bolton as being really opposed to a call between President Trump and President Zelensky, because he predicted it would be a disaster. Turns out that was correct. Here's a related question in a tweet from Francis Yancey, who writes, The reaction of Republicans to Taylor's testimony is an example of why I asked you if you were disappointed in your country July 4th. Each hour brings disbelief as one person after another demonstrates a lack of ethics or support for the rule of law. Hashtag Aspreet. Well, Francis, Yancey, I think it's an important point that you raise. The reaction to Taylor's testimony, generally speaking, where excuses are made and clear language is debated in a way that seems quite frivolous, that's one thing. The other thing we've come to expect, as I already mentioned, is if anyone dares to say something that is not in the interests of the president of the United States, The president himself, through his weaponized Twitter account, and other allies of his will engage in the worst sort of unseemly character assassination we've seen. And it doesn't matter how long your service has been to the country. It doesn't matter how Republican you have been or how nonpartisan you have been. If you dare to say something against the president, they will attack you and they will make up things about you. Look what happened to Bob Mueller. Whatever you think about his investigation, he was a man of good faith and a sincere public servant who served his country in battle and served his country at the FBI and served his country as special counsel. And he had nothing to gain from it and nothing to prove. And he did his duty and look how they treated him. And now you see Bill Taylor. And I think one of the most remarkable parts of his testimony, as we've seen with other witnesses, is his recitation of his service to America, because he knows that that's going to be an important thing for people to look at when he has to defend himself from attacks, some of which have already been formulated, I believe the White House issued a statement where they refer to him, apparently, and others like him as radical unelected bureaucrats. And I agree with those people who have said on Twitter and on social media, every single Republican who is supportive of the president should be asked, after seeing the opening statement from Bill Taylor and those who have seen the testimony in the committee, do you believe that Bill Taylor is a radical unelected bureaucrat? As Taylor writes... In his own opening statement, I have dedicated my life to serving U.S. interests at home and abroad in both military and civilian roles. My background and experience are nonpartisan, and I have been honored to serve under every administration, Republican and Democratic, since 1985. He says, for 50 years, I have served the country, starting as a cadet at West Point, then as an infantry officer for six years, including with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam, then at the Department of Energy, then as a member of a Senate staff, then at NATO, then with the State Department here and abroad in Afghanistan, Iraq, Jerusalem, and Ukraine, and more recently as executive vice president of the nonpartisan United States Institute of Peace. And you know, that's not to say that just because you have long, uninterrupted public service for the country, that everything you say needs to be taken as gospel and that you're not fallible. But it does say, I think, you know, without any blemish on your record up to this point, and by the way, after you've gone into retirement, having approached the age of 70 or more, and you're handpicked, By Secretary Pompeo to come back and be pressed into service as the lead diplomat in Ukraine, that you're owed a little bit of respect when you come forward and do something that I think is very brave, even if it pisses off the president and pisses off his allies. So yeah, I'm really disturbed about how people have been reacting to longstanding public servants who decide to come forward and say something. I think it's long overdue for people like that to come forward and say something. My guest this week is Cameron Douglas he's a first-time author whose memoir, Long Way Home, traces his lifelong struggle with drug addiction and drug dealing. You may know Cameron's father, Oscar-winning actor and producer Michael Douglas of The American President, Wall Street, and so many more. You'll also know his grandfather, Kirk Douglas, who boasts an equally impressive filmography.
2: I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus.
1: In 2009, Cameron was arrested in a New York City hotel after a three-year investigation into his drug distribution business. He would go on to spend almost eight years in the federal prison system. SDNY, the office I used to lead, prosecuted Cameron's very public case. In what I think is a very special interview, Cameron joins me to talk about his experience in the criminal justice system and his rocky road to recovery and redemption. That's coming up. Stay tuned. to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their
0: cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED.
1: Cameron Douglas, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So I'm holding in my hands your new book, which comes out today. We're taping on a Tuesday, called Long Way Home. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. You should be really proud of this book. I didn't know what fully to expect when I read it, but it's very compelling. It's very honest. And I want to talk about how you were able to put all this down on paper. One interesting thing that we share, (laughs) separate from the obvious thing that connects us, which we can talk about, is that you and I have the same publisher, Knopf, and we have the same editor, Peter Gethers. And it was a little weird when he was editing my book, he kept talking about another book that he was editing, which was yours, which he raved about. And I know he's proud of the book too. How tough was Peter as an editor?
2: Uh, Well, Peter was great, but I also have to say, he raved about your book in equal parts <laughs> okay. as well. So. Uh,
1: you read from the script perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, kind of different books, look, from, from different ends of the spectrum. There was one other time a year and a half ago, I did a series on so the criminal justice system. We did four, four parts. I interviewed a prominent former prosecutor, a prominent former defense lawyer, who happens to be one of your defense lawyers, Ben Braffman. Good old Ben. Uh, yeah, and, and someone who my office prosecuted. It's only the second time we've had this kind of interview, and it, it's always—it's a little odd, but I think an important conversation to have because I've—I've learned some things since the time that I left office. You've learned some things during the experience you had, which you detail it in great uh, minute detail in your in your book. So, the other thing I want to mention off the bat is when we get into the thing that brought you to prison, you were arrested two weeks before I started as the U.S. attorney. So I was not the U.S. attorney when you were arrested. Ah, okay. Um, and given the nature of the case, it was not something I personally supervised, but we'll, we'll talk about your feelings about it and how you went through the process and what you think about it. You have some strong statements about some things in the book, which, you know, I think you make in good faith. So we'll talk about that. But, but I guess my first question is, why did you write the book?
2: Well, you know, pre, I can't uh, go back in time and, and change what's happened. Uh, the choices and decisions I've made are what they are, but what I can do is uh, try to take all that and, and turn it into something useful for people and families uh, that are struggling with addiction, that uh, feel like they've lost hope. And, uh, and, and that, was, that was really uh, the effort. And as a byproduct, it was very helpful for me to go back over my life you know in the process of writing this book and try to better understand some of these choices that I made so that, you know, I can be more helpful. And that was, uh, that was really great. You know, that was um, something that was, has, has been very important to me. And then thirdly, it's a good way to sum up all those years of my life and then put it behind me and, and move forward. Um, was it hard? It was very difficult. Uh, what was the hardest part about writing this book? (sighs) Well, you know, going back and, and just uncovering a lot of old pain that I caused others that I dealt with and just, you know, reopening old wounds. But on the flip side of that, by doing that, I found it to be Uh, very healing in the long run, certainly with my family. You're very honest about your family, about your mom, your
1: dad, their relationship. Did you have the ability to put all that out in a first draft or did it take a while for you to put in all the honest things that you have in there?
2: Well, you know, I I tried uh, to not make this a book uh, about my family. Uh, I I feel that my family is included where their lives affect mine. Really, the purpose was not to write a book about my family. It was to write a book about, you know, my journey and what I've taken from it. And hopefully by laying it out uh, in the way that I have, honestly, uh, I feel like that's the best way to connect with people that that are also going through some difficult times. Speaking of family, you do begin the book. With a painful story about your uncle. Right. Why do you begin the book that way and, and, and what happened? It seemed like a, um, a moment in my life that was, you know, very traumatizing. Your father, Michael Douglas, gets a phone call. Yes. And what is he told? Uh, my father gets a phone call from the NYPD and he's told that uh, they've found my uncle uh, and he's dead apparently from an accidental overdose. And, you know, the effect that it had on my father at that moment, uh, I had never seen him in in a state like that. And it was, you know, as you can imagine, extremely traumatizing for for the whole family. That's the kind of news that shakes everyone, you know, to their core.
1: What impact did it have on you? And did you worry, as you say in the book, I think, you know, am I going to end up like that? Am I like my uncle?
2: You know, that was always the sort of, um, when my father or mother, more at a, at a young age, not so much after Eric's passing, but, uh, leading up to it, you know, his behavior was, was erratic. And, you know, uh, my uncle Eric was struggling with a lot of stuff, you know, internally. And as a result, it created a, a tempest around him. And so as a younger man, uh, my family would use him as an example of like why I needed to get my act together and to tr- try to learn from his mistakes. And, you know, obviously as, as, uh, as you know, from my book, uh, I was very stubborn and unfortunately I wasn't able to learn from my uncle's mistakes and I had to find out for myself, but I don't think that, that, that everyone has to, to do that.
1: So let's talk about your family before we get to
2: the things you experienced.
1: Because people will be asking the question, what is it like to be the son of Michael Douglas and the grandson of Kirk Douglas? So you've got Spartacus and the American president. Was there pressure for you to succeed in the same way that they had? Was there pressure for you to act because you acted and I think you're trying to act again? What was the level of expectation on you and how did that affect you?
2: My father and uh, my grandfather and my mother really did not you know create an environment where i felt like i was expected to fill their shoes you know they always encouraged me to find what it was that inspired me and to to follow that obviously i have great respect for my father and my grandfather and 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 my mother but since my grandfather and father are the ones that are famous i guess that's what we're talking about. And I have great respect for them and their accomplishments. And they've always been uh, great role models to me and continue to be. At some point, you began using drugs. When was that? I believe when I was around 13. I think it was in seventh grade. Yeah.
1: And how bad did that get?
2: Uh, it got terrible. It got, uh, it got to the point where I was a, uh, a heroin addict and it got to the point where you know I did nearly eight years in, in the custody of the uh, Bureau of Prisons. Um, so it, it got about as bad as it it, it could get. You know, it, I, it got to a point where where I honestly thought that I was I was not put together correctly, and I lost hope for myself. I thought something was intrinsically wrong with me, and so with that in mind. I sort of was living my life like, unfortunately, I'm broken and I'm going to live my life and come what may. But somewhere along the way, uh, that changed. And if it can change for me, it can change for, for everyone. When you think
1: back, having been very reflective, as was required by the process of writing this book, which is very intimate, as we've said, is there something you think could have been different when you were young either that your family had done or a path you might have chosen that might have helped you avoid the difficult path you went down
2: really what would have been incredibly helpful for me as a young man if I would have taken advantage of of therapy and and really given that a shot you know i i had uh, so many opportunities to deal with therapists and psychiatrists and and rehabs even when I was younger. And, and had I been more open to that, I think it could have been really helpful. So that's, that's something that I tell anyone that I know that I care about that is struggling with addiction potentially or, or really anything, because I think that's extremely helpful to find somebody that you trust and that you respect uh, to a degree, and and open up and let some of this stuff out, and try to find, you know, resolutions rather than holding on to everything and stuffing it down and pretending like it doesn't exist.
1: So, how many different drugs did you become addicted to?
2: Well, I was a, uh, I was a, a cocaine addict first, and then a, and then a heroin addict. But then you began at some point. You made the jump actually dealing in drugs. Right. When
1: did you make that jump and why?
2: Well, I, um, I got to a point in my life uh, where I was just, I was, I had a role on a movie uh, that was shooting in Ireland, and I acquired this role just months after getting addicted to heroin, and uh, as you know, when you get a, addicted to heroin, it's a physical addiction, And uh, I I ended up uh, getting extremely sick on the job after running out of heroin and was fired from the job and basically given an an ultimatum by my family, which was to go directly into an inpatient rehab. And I was living with a woman at the time uh, and to basically part ways with this woman or else they were not going to they they were not going to support me any longer, which is totally understandable. So then you didn't have the same financial situation
1: as you used to have?
2: Well, oh, I didn't I, I had I was almost living on the street. I was uh, just one uh, motel payment away from from living on the street. Uh um, so, so
1: are you saying you began to sell drugs for the money? Yes. Even though you came from a wealthy family.
2: Yes. But you know what's what's interesting, Preet, is um when I was indicted or or what caused the indictment was a sting operation that the uh, the DEA uh, arranged and I hadn't had anything to do with the drug dealing for over a year at that point in fact I had moved from California back to New York and while I I certainly probably would have Uh, If it wasn't a a DEA operation that caught me, it probably would have been somebody else. And and maybe those drugs would have hit the streets. So kudos to you guys for that. But then after that, you know, where was I'm just just in a conversation about justice, you know. So I I went in for uh, for, on a five year sentence, ended up doing uh, close to eight years with the B.O.P., close to two of those years in solitary confinement. My recollection
1: is, and I've actually, as I mentioned before we started taping, did some research over the last few days because I was not supervising your case personally, talked to some of the prosecutors, talked to your defense lawyer, read some of the papers. Largely, you were arrested for distributing crystal meth. Mm -hmm. How'd you make the leap into crystal meth when you had been an addict of heroin and, and cocaine?
2: It was a supply and demand situation. Business? Business, but, but you yourself were not addicted to meth. No. That was your business. Yes.
1: Separate from your addiction, but for the purpose of making money.
2: For the purpose of facilitating my addiction.
1: And you were doing that in, in California for a bit, and then you moved to New York. And your arrest happened in New York.
2: I was doing that in California only, and then moved to New York after trying to get away from from that and sort of restart. And that's when the arrest happened. Right. And the dealing, just so we understand when we get into a discussion about
1: the fairness of the sentence and, mm. and what happened in prison, we're not talking about small bags. We're talking about substantial quantities of crystal meth. Absolutely. You know, how, how, what, what would you say the quantity was?
2: Uh, I was arrested for a pound of, uh, of crystal meth.
1: And a pound goes for how much?
2: I think at the time- Depends on where. <laughs> it depends on, on where. When. I believe at the time in, in New York, it was around- up to $30,000. $27,000. Yeah. So between $27,000 and $30,000. Yeah. And over, t- you were arrested maybe
1: initially on that pound, but they were, during the course of your activities, drug dealing, many, many pounds. There were. So hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes. Okay. So you understand that in part you got arrested because there was an investigation going on of a crystal meth ring. And as I understand it, and we'll talk about your experience with the issue of flipping in a moment, but somebody gets locked up and they're jammed up because they're locked up and they point the finger at other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you describe, at the beginning of part two of the book, which is mostly about your experiences with criminal law enforcement in prison, you describe essentially a betrayal by someone who took a room in the same hotel that you were in, which resulted in your arrest. So if someone mm-hmm. flipped on you. Right. how did you feel about that person when you realized that you had been, I'll use your words, betrayed in that way?
2: Well, uh, upset, but at the same time, you know, when I was arrested, the time that the federal government hands out is, uh, I hate to use the word astronomical, but it feels astronomical when you're sitting well, in that position. Yes. When it's you, of course it does. Uh, and know, look, and, and there's a legitimate so, argument that it's higher so, 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 than it should know, be. Well, yeah, no, but that's fine. So, you know, with life in prison is a possibility. You know, so, they, so I understand, especially more so as, as I understood the system more you know, what some of these people are going through and you feel betrayed, but, uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's the way the, the system works. And I'm not so much, I, I'm not saying that, uh, that my punishment was, was unfair. I'm just talking about, you know, in regards to the statutes and how everything works and stuff like that. So I'm by no means saying that I'm just trying to open the conversation with you about the justice in these sentences are they appropriate? I mean, do they do they serve a purpose? In other words, I myself was not involved in organized crime. I don't have any connection to cartels. I have no violence. I myself was a drug addict, plain and simple. You know, there's millions of people like me in that regard that go through the system. And I think what happens and I've seen firsthand is that you know, you, you, you put a civilian in prison and you put him in there for a significant amount of time, what ends up coming out is a bona fide criminal. And the way that, that our prison-industrial complex works, the way that we treat inmates in this country, is not in an effort to reform them, even if that's you know, what the taxpayers are told. You know, as the security level goes up, especially, the more you're treated like an animal. The more you're treated like an animal, the more you act like one. And then guess what happens? Then these these men and women, they come home and they're living next to uh, the the civilians. And it's like, it seems like something's not working uh, properly there.
1: What do you think would have been a fair sentence for you based on your conduct?
2: No, I'm as I just said, I'm not debating the fairness of my sentence. Because we can debate the fairness of your second sentence because you were sentenced once. Right. And then there was a transgression and then you got...
1: I think fair to say, hammered the second time by a particular judge. And I want to talk about that because I, I have, you know, look at the records and I think even my own folks were surprised at the sentence you got the second time. But before we get to that, right. I want to talk about something that I find really interesting in your thought process about flipping. So I have overseen the prosecutions of lots and lots of people and personally prosecuted lots and lots of people. And I have an entire chapter in my own book that Peter edited on the phenomenon of cooperating, yeah, flipping. Some right. people call them snitches. And what the psychology is of people who decide to flip and not flip. And for you, I found this to be one of the most interesting parts of the book because you, throughout the discussion, keep going back to this idea of not ever being comfortable cooperating and not ever being comfortable flipping, even though people are telling you, your lawyers are telling you, look, Cameron, you're facing a 10-year mandatory minimum sentence, which you were based on the quantity on the crystal meth. And the one way in the federal system, there's another way, but the one way principally to get something less than 10 solid years is to cooperate and testify for the government. And in your book, when you're considering these things, if I can just read this back to you, because mm-hmm. it's very compelling and not everyone thinks this way. Some people, you met some of these people, I'm sure, they flip on a dime against family, against their best friends, yeah. and some people never do. And you're we're kind of in between. And you write, the DEA is hitting me with the pitch they hit everyone with to wear down any determination not to cooperate. Someone wore a wire on you. Why should they go free while you go to prison? So why don't I just name names and enthusiastically cooperate? And then you, you list out, you, you enumerate reasons why you're not comfortable. And you say, one, there's a code among criminals. And I believe in it. This is a situation I got myself into, understanding the risks. And I don't think it's fair to drag other people into it. Two, I don't want to give information about some people I genuinely care about or to live with the weight of knowing I did that to them. Three, if I cooperate with the government, I'll forfeit a lot of rights, including the right to appeal. 4 you got four reasons. I know that the stigma of cooperating will make for a much more difficult prison experience. And you talk about that at great length. So talk about how you turned over in your head this idea of, of cooperating or not.
2: Well, you know, I mean, as I, as I said just before I got hammered with the second sentence that, that you know, we started to talk about, I've always felt that way. When you're in the throes of heroin withdrawal, there's not much you won't do it's 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 a feeling that you know can't be described but i'm sure you know you've you've heard a lot about it and anybody listening to this podcast i'm sure has some interest in it and probably knows a little bit about it and and so i was looking for any excuse i was trying to find a way to to one deal with that sickness and two i felt like maybe I could somehow manipulate my way out of this with these uh, people that are very good at their job, you know, which was, uh, you know, just that was the way that a civilian looks, a civilian drug addict looks at a situation of this magnitude. You know, you just, in other words, you just are not seeing things clearly. So you were torn.
1: On the one hand, cooperate, and I'll get out of prison sooner. In fact, maybe you should spend a minute describing your arrest and what the agents did and where they brought you and how you had a conversation with your father, Michael Douglas, before Mm -hmm. deciding what to do.
2: So the agents arrested me, and they said, uh, once they took me to the, the DEA headquarters, which happened to be five blocks away from where I was staying, they said, the first pitch was, you know, you're looking at possibly life in prison and and then it was, you know, your family. Uh, do this for your family. If you do this, we'll make sure this never comes out in the press, which is all not even possible. Uh, and uh, then I, I asked uh, if I could make a phone call to my father because he's uh, the one person that I look to you know, for the best advice, the person I trust and, and, uh, I have, I, that I trust. Yeah. Um, and he told you to flip. And well, what happened is, is I was speaking to him and, uh, I was, I'll never forget that day. You know, he, he, we hadn't spoken in a while and he, he answered the phone. He was so happy to hear my voice and I had to, uh, tell him what was going on. And I couldn't quite get it out and one of the agents took the phone and he walked away with it uh, and he came back and uh he handed me the phone and uh and my father said that he thought i should do you know what they asked me to do now i didn't take that advice had i had i taken that advice more to heart maybe things would have been easier on me in the long run but what I tried to do at that point was, you know, feed these people a bunch of lies and half-truths. So you lied to the agents. You lied to the prosecutors. I did.
1: While sort of pretending that you were fully cooperating. Right. Because you wanted to have it both ways? Yes. And, and end up you got neither benefit.
2: I got neither benefit. I ended up getting neither benefit. I ended up getting the basically the 10 years uh, that I would have gotten. Well, but so initially you go before the court. Judge Berman, who I know well, and I, and I think is a good
1: judge. And I don't think, my experience, I don't think an especially tough sentencing judge most of the time.
2: That sounds about like my luck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you had you had this shot. Yes. And you got out from under the 10-year mandatory minimum. And look, there are lots of arguments that are legitimate. The mandatory minimums are a problem. You shouldn't have them. But for you, you got out from under that because you said you were going to cooperate. And in particular, they were they wanted to know who your suppliers were. Mm-hmm. go up the food chain, which is what law enforcement does. Right. And there were a couple of brothers who, unclear where they were, if they were going to be found. And those were the people that the DA, and as I understand it, my old office was interested in. And they were going to use your testimony if those folks ever showed up to help convict those guys, right? Right. Who were bigger folks than you. Mm-hmm. And everyone went along with that. And you actually got, I think, the benefit of being able to be sentenced even before any testimony. Mm-hmm. Because usually it's the case, in most cases that I ever saw, that if a guy like you gets arrested, they want to wait and see how much you assist and wait and see how your testimony goes and all the cooperation finishes, and then you get sentenced. Meanwhile, you're in prison that whole time. For a variety of reasons, it seems like you got the benefit of an early sentence, even before testifying, and seeing how worthwhile you know, your truthfulness was. And you got five. Mm-hmm. Which I think in the judge's mind was a gift to you. Did you think of it as such or no?
2: Well, it's hard to think of, uh, you know, five years in prison as a gift. And at this point still was very early on my understanding of the system and how it works and the kind of time that, that they dole out was still, you know. Uh, a lot of time. Well, I mean, that's nothing. There's people that would do anything for five years, you know, that are in our systems today. And uh, so I wasn't fully understanding everything, yet the way that I would come to, uh, you know, a few years down the line. You know, I don't know if you think this had a,
1: had a role. I, I read a lot of the letters submitted on your behalf at that first sentencing, and they're extraordinary. And I think you write in the book that, that some people were very honest, which was, I think, helpful, not realizing that their letters would become public. I thought they were only going to be read by the judge. But it paints a picture. I, I was struck by how many times people wrote, and obviously these people are, know you and they're trying to help you. A phrase came up over and over again. And I wonder how you felt when you read them. They kept saying "You're a person with a good heart. What did you feel when you read so many people say that about you
2: well that's that's one thing uh about myself that uh I do I have a big heart i i uh when i when I care about somebody and I love somebody uh there's nothing that i that I won't do for them so that was you know that that is something that I'm not ashamed to. To to own or even say that I recognize in myself, you could be proud of that. Yeah, <laughs> something to be proud of. Right. Maybe. Well, you know, it's, it's people be modest, but you know, I do. I have a big heart, uh, oftentimes to a fault. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. So then
1: you get sentenced to the five years, but then some things happen. You you violate in various ways. We don't have to go through it all but among other things.
2: Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. so, so well, you explain because it ties into the, the whole solitary issue, which, uh, which I know is, is something that you feel strongly about. And, uh, so w- what happened is, uh, I gave a dirty urine and they found uh, one eighth of a pill of Suboxin in my cell. So basically I was, you know, was hammered by the prisons. I was given, uh, one year in solitary confinement uh, for a dirty urine and one eighth of a pill of Suboxone. I lost my, my visits for four years. I lost my, you know, it means I can't see my family for four years. I lost, you know, commissary phone, everything else. But just for that, I was put, you know, in solitary for a year. So that was that. Then on top of that, for the same thing, Judge Berman gave me, well, I think it was like four years and nine months, basically another and five and years. Yeah,
1: but in the interim, also to the extent this is relevant, one of the the two brothers who were your suppliers end up getting arrested, right? Mm-hmm. And now this thing that you were trying to avoid, which is testifying against someone else and cooperating with the government, now you're kind of compelled
2: to do, and you didn't want to, but you did uh, in well, the first I, trial because the brothers,
1: I think, had separate trials.
2: I mean, I, well, and this is why this is why I got the sentence uh, that I did the second time, and and I understand it. Yeah, I mean, in in, in the first trial i basically said uh that everything that i said to the dea was in regards to this gentleman was uh was not true and that i was uh with, withdrawing from heroin and and what have you um did you testify truthfully at the trial that was the truth yep. yeah okay. I, I, that that uh that was the truth right and then uh on the second trial i refused i refused to uh to go back right and,
1: I looked at the papers and maybe there's, a, there's a, a difference in recollection here that the prosecutors decided for various reasons that you wouldn't be a good witness at the second trial. So they didn't want to use you at the second trial. And based on these violations, you went back before the, the judge for a resentence. And I wanted to make sure that I understood what everyone's view was. And the probation department recommended 366 days, mm-hmm. a year and a day. Mm-hmm. The guidelines were something like under two years. And that the, the line prosecutors in my office said that consistent with what they thought the guidelines were, and they thought some false statements you had made to them, that it should be 18 to 24 months. And I, you know, I've talked to some of these folks since, because I wasn't closely following it at the time. And you go into court, and they all expected you to get something between mm-hmm. zero and 24 months on top of the five, mm-hmm. which the court had felt. I know you don't feel this way. The court had felt you'd been given a break. And Judge Berman was was mad, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, he was.
1: The judge at the first sentencing had said, even in giving you what he thought was a break, quote, therapeutically, we all need to get over the theme that Cameron Douglas is a victim. So it seems that he had a particular view about what responsibility you were accepting. Right. And then you have these other transgressions that give you a lot of administrative penalty in prison, as you've described, which are not soft. And then Judge Berman says, quote, I don't believe that I've had another case ever of a defendant who has so recklessly and flagrantly and wantonly and criminally acted in as destructive and manipulative a fashion as Cameron
2: Douglas has here. I found you know, that a little hard to believe since he's a judge this in the, the book. Southern in the District
1: book. of... It, and it, you know, I have great respect for Judge Berman. Clearly he was angry. I've not often seen him angry. And it seems that, you know, the psychology of, of judges who are just people is the same as the psychology of other people. And you actually analyze it pretty well. You said, I don't know if it's some combination of feeling like a chump for having sentenced me in a way that was well below the guidelines the first time mm-hmm. and or the transgressions and or, I'm paraphrasing, you said it more eloquently, and or the fact that I'm a privileged white kid and or the fact that there was this incident with your lawyer mm-hmm. who got into trouble for bringing you contraband and ended Xanax. up almost getting, almost getting arrested and almost getting disbarred herself. The combination of those things made him angry. And he gave you what my folks, you know, two times what my folks recommended Four and a half times what the probation department recommended, and you got four and a half years. So I think you've said how you feel about it. But explain your feeling in the moment and how you feel about it today.
2: Listen, I, I was uh, I, I sort of short-circuited at one point when I went back to the bullpens, kind of passed out. And then, uh, you know, I was in solitary confinement at the time at MDC. Uh, got back to my cell, and the inmates on the unit had been rioting and flooding the toilets and everything like that. And uh, I remember, you know, you don't have any shelves, all my books and letters and uh, legal work and writing was all on the ground and it was uh, soaking wet and, and ruined. And I felt like something inside of me was, was, was breaking. And it was, it was a scary feeling but I think it was the, the impetus for the direction that I decided to go from that point. I think at that point, there were two, two sort of paths that I could have gone down. One, very destructive and maybe uh, never would have made it home as a result of, and two was the path that I chose to take, which was that I felt that I had to do everything I could do each day to get myself in the best possible position, once I was released from prison, to to make a real life for myself. And it didn't happen with a snap of my fingers. It was a journey. I mean, so my year uh, in solitary turned into 18 months or something like that uh, because you know, various... You did various things. I did various things. I, we can get into some of them. Well, so, well, you, we should. I mean, you know, there's... When you're put into a uh, cement box with another man 23 hours a day and you don't get along with this other gentleman, it can get pretty dangerous in there. And so I had a couple scenarios like that. There's one scenario in which you know, you're the narrator, so
1: I have to give you the benefit of the doubt in how you describe the danger that you felt yourself to be in. And it was one cellmate you had who you thought didn't like you. And if you didn't strike first and figure out a way to be separated from him in the cell and go to a new cell, he might kill you. Didn't make a direct threat, but you're a person who's been in prison for a while at this point and you make a judgment. And then one day, if I remember correctly, your cellmate is doing push-ups, and you're very candid about this mm-hmm. in the book. Your cellmate is doing push-ups, and you realize you have to take the first shot. He hadn't done anything to you yet. You just felt a generalized fear and you kick him in the throat hard, Mm -hmm. so hard that for a moment you think maybe it was too hard and you might've killed him. Explain why you did that.
2: Well, you know, I think fear is is something that makes people most dangerous. You know, when somebody is is scared for their life, they become dangerous. And uh, I was fearful of this guy and it's not uncommon to, to be uh, hurt badly in your cell, in your sleep, you know, by, by the person that you're in the cell with. Right. Since so, so you, you
1: engaged in preemptive violence, you right. thought to protect yourself. Yes. Do you still think that those were the right thing to do?
2: Uh, probably, probably this, this gentleman and I were not in a good place. But the reason I, I, I shouldn't have been with this gentleman in the first place you is... You think the guards were screwing with you? Yeah, they were. With. They were. And after him, they put me in with a, a white supremacist uh, who hadn't been able to sell with anyone. He'd been by himself the whole time. And they decided to put me in the cell with him. And... Um, and you attacked him too, preemptively. Mm-hmm. I did. I did. And you think still
1: that was the correct thing?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This guy's, but so dangerous. you got so you got
1: jammed up for those things. Yeah, right. I did, and and that's in part why you went. By, I got my, jammed. My account, I got right?
2: jammed up for those things, but I also got my own cell, which ended up for you. There's a lot of paradoxes
1: when we talk about prison, right? So solitary is terrible in many ways, and a lot of psychologists think it is, particularly for adolescents. But in some ways, for you, it was it was a good thing because you were safer. And at some point, I think you are right, that you you started to appreciate being alone, or no?
2: Well, I mean, I I I don't know if I was. Uh, safer in, in solitary confinement. I think uh, some people seek refuge uh, in solitary confinement. That wasn't my experience, you know, due to (laughs) these, uh, you know, you had the opportunity At, at one
1: transfer you wrote when you went in the, the prison staff knew that you might, you know, have some trouble with some folks who were at the prison and they asked you if you wanted to check in, meaning go to solitary and you didn't want to be that person. You want to look like you were afraid of being in the general population. And so you refused it. Exactly.
2: As I did at every prison. I went to every prison you go to. It's not just me in particular. As you arrive at the prison, a person from the SIS office will uh, give you a brief interview. And they'll ask you uh, if you're safe on this compound and if you feel safe or if there's any reason that you shouldn't walk on this compound. And then once you tell them that... uh, you can walk on the compound, they have you sign a piece of paper to absolve them of any responsibility if you're killed. That's something that's 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 everyone that goes to arrives at a prison gets that treatment. I don't know, I mean my my thing with the solitary is is I understand, you know, to to manage the safety of a of an individual or or the people around him. But when you, when you start getting into this this long long stretches of uh, solitary confinement, I wonder, you know, what the purpose is. Because you asked yourself, does does solitary confinement make you less uh, aggressive? And I think the answer would be no. Does solitary confinement make your mental state uh, more balanced? I think the answer would be no. You know, and I think you can go down this checklist, and and so it's 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 another thing. I think that that really deserves to be uh, looked at a little harder. Certainly in, in certain scenarios and situations uh, to manage you know people's safety, it's absolutely a necessary tool, but I think they get abused. Here's what I've
1: been wanting to ask you since going through your book and hearing about your experience. And it's this paradox about prison. So prison is awful in many ways and some places are worse than others. And by my count, you were at a lot of different places. You were at the MCC, the MDC, FCI Lewisburg, FCI Loretto, FCI Cumberland, Danbury, and a bunch of places. And we can talk a little bit about what was different about those. But you say, towards the end of your book, and I found this very compelling, you say, I can almost say I feel blessed by my prison experience. Not in every way, but it was in prison that I began to get my life together. I got my priorities together. I answered questions about myself that I'd always had. And you go on to say, I'd gone into prison a boy, even though you were 30, and I came out a man. So... (laughs) Was, pri- was prison, and I think I get it, but I want to hear how you well, describe it.
2: So just to, just because it sounds kind of funny, the way you said, you know, I, I went into prison a boy, although I was 30. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I think what happens when, you, when one starts abusing drugs at an early age is uh, you get caught at that age. You know, you, 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 you don't uh, necessarily uh, grow up the way you freeze, you, I don't know if you freeze, but you know, just the, your, the evolution is a little bit different. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, you have a, a, a little more, uh, adolescent, you know, a little more reckless, um, and, and hopefully that will serve me, uh, moving forward as I start to become an old man. Um, <laughs> you got a ways to go yeah. <laughs> uh, a decade before you reach me uh, yeah. even, but, um, but, but how do you square this idea? Cause I think I know what
1: you're, you're trying to say. Well, so on uh, the one hand, prison is, is, well, I'm
2: going to Yeah. so I would, I would, I would never sit here and say that prison is the answer. You know, I just, I couldn't. Uh, in good faith you know, with my experience and, and, and seeing what I've seen. But what I can say for me personally is that prison was this explosion, anything short of this monumental explosion in my life, I don't think would have had the gravitas to, to turn things around. I feel like I, I did a lot of growing up in prison. I had a lot of time to reflect and I'd like to think that I'm gonna be able to, to make it work for me. That's really, that's a part of this effort here, you know, is in an effort to take some of, some of that time, some of those experiences and turn them into uh, something that's productive and helpful and in the end useful. If you hadn't gone to prison, do you think you'd be here today? Probably not. I mean you wouldn't be alive? If I was alive, I'd probably be wishing I was dead. You know I mean, the the, the drug addiction, it goes through stages, you know, and and there's a stage when uh, when it's almost cute, edgy, uh, maybe sexy to some, you know, and then it gets to the stage where it's just destructive uh, and and sad and and messy. And then, you know, and then it just gets into this, like, you know, just, you're kind of just like squirming through life. Yeah, I know people that are still living in in this way and it's it's not a good existence. It's just, um, so I feel very grateful today that, uh, you know, I'm on a different path. And certainly my experiences are a big part of why I'm on a different path. Do you have advice to people who were maybe caught up in the kinds of things you were when you were
1: 30 before you got arrested? Or is it not something that simple advice can solve?
2: Well, you know, one of the areas that, that I feel strongly about is, um, is working with at-risk youth. Uh, you know, 12 and 13 to like 18, I think are, are very important years, especially for kids that are starting to go down that path that leads to prison and violence, and, and then, you know, death in many cases. Uh, I I think that you know those kids need to hear from somebody that has been through it because those kids they don't want to hear from just some guy or woman talking to them you know those kids are already starting to go down that path those kids already have certain ideals they already look up to certain kind of characters uh, and they need to hear from those kind of people uh, that have been through stuff like that so. You know, so I think advice, I think it, well, you know, as you know, I mean, advice from people that you respect hits home, you know, most of the time where advice from people that you don't uh, necessarily have that level of respect for doesn't resonate quite as much.
1: Did you make friends in prison? I did. You describe it and you say something that I think most people don't think about, right? You said something that has stuck in my mind and that is, I'm paraphrasing again, cause you again said it more eloquently on the outside, you get an hour with somebody, you get their best self. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever you think of me, an hour, I think I've been fairly well-behaved. Right. You don't know what kind of person I am, right? And it takes a long time for someone on the outside to reveal themselves, which I thought was a profound observation. Whereas on the inside, you find out about a person pretty quick. And that allows you, with the people who are on the same wavelength as you, you can make a connection with and you can become friends with. Is that how it
2: works? Yeah, I mean, you you get the measure of an individual uh, fairly quickly. People are tested daily, and you get to see how people handle uh, different scenarios and situations. And, you know, you try to uh, surround yourself with with like-minded people. I was—it's also important, especially as, you know, your your security classification goes up. You know, you need to find a group of people that you, uh, you know, you guys— enjoy being around each other and you guys look out for each other. And it's, you know, I, 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 would, I would guess it's, it's, it's similar to the bonds, you know, that, that soldiers make. There's a lot of similarities, I think, between, between the two, except I'm, for in the best senses, which are, you know, uh, soldiers are out uh, risking their lives for their country. I'm not making that comparison at all. Just, you know, in the camaraderie that takes place. On June 13th, 2016, what happened? Uh, on June 13th, 2016, I was released uh, from, from Danbury and uh, waiting for me was, was uh, my mother and three of my siblings, my girlfriend, who's, you know, my rock. With whom you have a child. With, we have a beautiful uh, little daughter and live together. How did it feel that day? It was, it was special. It was special, but it was tempered by the fact that I had nine months of halfway house. I mean, it's not, people think that when you're released from prison, it's like, that's you know, it. you yeah, at not that a, you know. And, uh, and there's still the opportunity, as you
1: point out. There's still the opportunity to go back if you screw up as you saw people did in the halfway house.
2: Well, it's more than, more, it's a generous opportunity, I'd say. I mean, I think that's another issue that we have, uh, Setting up for failure. Yes, it really is. I mean, you know, these guys, it's hard to convey how difficult it is for these men and women once they come home to try to make it work. I was in a a situation that almost nobody is in upon coming home from prison, Uh, you know, with the support and love of my family. um, You, You point out, you say a thing that's pretty sad
1: where you were different from everyone else. I forget which institution it was. Maybe it was all of them that when the mailbag came around, there's a lot of mail for you. And the guards would make fun. Like Cameron's got mail, Cameron's got more mail. And there were people in there who never got a bit
2: of mail from anybody. People forget about people in prison. And I understand it. It was a, a, a sentiment that I understand firsthand as I had an acquaintance of mine was sentenced to 10 years in prison while I was on the street and I remember thinking, well, he's gone. Like, you know, he's tantamount to being dead. I mean, 10 years when you're on the streets, is like a lifetime. So, you know, that people are forgotten about in, in prisons, you know, people move on with their lives and that's just, you know, the unfortunate, one of the unfortunate things that, that, that come with, you know, that lifestyle and, and, and whatever comes with it. But you know, most of these people are coming home and it's, it's really difficult for them. Even myself, I had a lot of trouble finding a place to live. You know, no buildings wanted me as a tenant, uh, no landlords wanted to rent to me. You know, finding a, a job, I mean, forget about being inspired by your job or feeling fulfilled by one. your job, but yeah, just getting one. I, I mean, mean, it's.
1: Even just getting, and I've spoken about these issues and got involved in these issues towards the end of my time as U.S. Attorney. Even a simple thing, you didn't have this problem because you have resources and means. A lot of people got out of prison. They can't get a government issued ID. I did have that
2: problem. Yeah.
1: You were able to solve the problem more easily than some, I'm supposing.
2: Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, everything was, I lost all my property in the DEA seizures and everything like that. I, so coming out, I, was, I had nothing. I had no IDs, no nothing. The only thing I had was my prison ID card. And uh, I actually had a, a check from the government, uh, from a malpractice, uh, ninety thousand dollars. Ninety thousand dollars. They messed up your leg. They messed up my leg, but I couldn't put it in the bank anywhere because I didn't have a. So it's it is it's a it's a real process. It takes several times going to the DMV. Uh, you know, have to find all like, documentation, this and that. It's it's not easy, and I think I, I don't know. This is kind of the way I like to put it. Maybe people can understand. Is uh, I think we can both agree, Preet, that our government. And our judicial system is not known for being warm and fuzzy, you know. It is not. Okay. And so if the time that our government feels is is suitable, that they dole out and they feel is suitable punishment for whatever actions the man or woman have committed, then that time should be suitable for any landlord, any employer, anybody else that these people have to deal with coming home. You know, that's what you're doing when you're going to prison. You're serving your time. And as we said, I think we can both agree that if our government finds it suitable, I think it can be good enough for everyone else. Are you corresponding with anyone you knew in prison still? I do. I hear from friends. uh, Can they get your book or not? I, 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 some sus- prisons don't allow hardcovers. They don't allow, I suspect these guys are pretty crafty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I suspect that, 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 uh, that, that a, that you a copy of can smuggle in book.
1: contraband. You can smuggle in. Well, I, I, I don't Douglas think they'll, the they'll
2: be smuggling that in. I just think it will All find right. its way. I don't want anybody in trouble. Yeah. What, what's the message you have to those guys? Oh, man, I mean, uh, any message that I would have for them, I probably learned through them, you know, so uh, there's nothing that I, that I could say. Is anyone going to be mad at you? well, there's, you changed the names. I hope there's nobody that's, uh, that's upset. You know, I mean, my family was extremely, uh, generous in allowing me to, to tell my story. I mean, I can't think of a, of a more loving way to show how much you care about someone than by allowing me to, to write a book that inevitably is going to put some of their life in the spotlight. So, you know, if if my family and I can can make it work, I don't think there should be anybody that should be too upset. I mean, I mean, I did this all to myself. You know, there's nobody to blame, but just trying to move forward and and make something useful out of it.
1: I think very brave the book you've written. I think it was it was it's a big deal that you would sit here and talk to me for over an hour. But part of the point I make in my own book is everyone's a human being, right? And from the prosecutor's perspective, you can sometimes forget that the defendants you prosecute are human beings until you flip them. And then sometimes they become your buddies because now they're on your side. People who are defendants can forget that judges are human beings. And I don't know, know exactly what happened in that case, but judges can color within the lines and still have you know, a reaction to being shown up by somebody. You know, th- this, this thing that happened with Judge Berman, I've been, I've been thinking about it and I think he's a very good judge, but there are some who I've seen when they have a defendant in front of them and they give them a break, if they see that person back in the courtroom again, you know, they go ballistic and they hammer them almost as much, if not more than they would have, had they not given the break in the first place. Is that a function of sort of legal theory? I don't know. Is it a function of human psychology? Probably more so. Mm-hmm. The point of all of this is, I think it's a useful conversation to have. So folks in my own line of work, understand what it is that happens in the mind of someone who has to go through the system. I mean, one of the best things I ever did was have Ben Brafman, your lawyer, come and address my office when I was a U.S. attorney to explain the perspective of other people, explain what it's like for a lawyer to be hired on a case, you know, at the last minute and for the prosecutor to be saying, you know, your client has an hour to flip. Otherwise, we're going to go to court and the offer expires. And how does that work if Ben is trying to build a rapport with the client? And by the same token, one of the reasons I wrote my book is there's a lot of people who are not part of law enforcement who have a view that prosecutors aren't thoughtful They don't consider the possibilities of innocence. They don't consider the ramifications of their decisions and help them understand that just like everyone else, prosecutors are people, they have flaws, they have- And everyone's different, right? Everyone's an individual. Just like, that's why I thought in part, the conversation that we had about cooperating and what you write in the book, because you keep coming back to it. It's a personal decision. And, you know, there have been high level mobsters who flip easily and some who never flip ever and that people are different. And you make a different, I mean, I guess I, I wonder, if you think the issue on flipping and cooperation, if you think that that should be something that should be banned or outlawed, or was it just a personal decision for you that you thought that a self-respecting person shouldn't cooperate and bring other people into their own troubles? Do you
2: I, think of it as a personal thing or a, or a policy thing? Okay, so I think I think from a legal standpoint and from a justice standpoint, I think utilizing the testimonies of individuals whose own lives are at stake I don't think that that is good enough testimony to put somebody away for potentially, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 years. These people have a have a uh, horse in the race, you know, their own freedom is at stake. So when that's, that's we always say you, when, got, to, you so, got to corroborate so, the hell out of so it. when that's the case, you know, it's you know, if you get a, a civilian witness or something like that, that's a different story so i just don't i just don't think it's fair i don't think it's 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 justice when the only testimony you have is from you know people that in some cases let's just be honest are being told what to say you know by the prosecutors or by the agents i mean this is reality not in all cases but they're, you know this is you know this can happen and then yes personally i do i feel i feel strongly about that it's i couldn't live with myself literally I thought about it every moment of every day until I tried to figure out some way to kind of do what I could do to even it out and back out of it. You know, it's everybody's on their own journey, their own path. And with every choice we make, there's a, there's an outcome. And within that we learn and we evolve. And how are you doing now? Uh, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. You know, I uh, quite honestly, as I said in the beginning, one of the things that I'm looking forward to, you know, through this whole process with the book is is to be able to move on with my life. But, you know, now I'm in the process of speaking about this book and inevitably- First, getting, you've
1: gotta be on the view. First, gotta <laughs> be on the view. That's right, <laughs> you got, man. You've got you some, gotta do
2: the circuit first. That's time. right, gotta do the circuit um you're acting again uh, acting again uh doing a lot of writing um you started writing poetry in prison did a lot of poetry you writing poetry before prison no i wasn't um but doing some screenwriting as well and been acting been doing a lot of theater been acting most of my life you know um <laughs> not now not no, here not now not, not right. here uh, maybe a little bit, but <laughs> that's, that goes, we'll go that goes back the to the what we were saying about, you know, you get, you get the best version yeah. of somebody in that <laughs> one hour. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's good. I feel like I've been really working hard. Uh, I've been home for a little over three years. Can you still do, this is proof that I read the book. Can you still do 1500 push ups in the morning? No. No, I don't think so. But it's been, you know, my life is very simple by design. It, my life revolves around my family and my work, and uh, and that's been the way it's been since I stepped through those gates um, on June thirteenth, uh, twenty sixteen, and that's how it continues to be. And it's uh, it seems to be working out well for me. You know, things are starting to come together, and I feel like uh, I'm starting to put a life together. Uh, for myself that I can feel good about.
1: You're a young man, so you got a lot of time. Cameron Douglas, thanks for being on the show. The book is a Long Way Home. Congratulations. It's great.
2: I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Preet.
1: My conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the stay-tuned bonus with Cameron Douglas and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. Try a Cafe Insider membership-free for two weeks. Start today at cafe.com slash insider. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Cameron Douglas and I had about his experiences in the criminal justice system, his experiences in prison, and I hope you thought as I did that it was a pretty honest, candid discussion. I thought I'd tell you a story that's further to some of the things that Cameron said and that I've talked about in the past, and that is just because you're behind prison walls doesn't mean you're beyond the Constitution. And just because you committed a crime that has caused you to be sent to prison doesn't mean that the system should forget about you and doesn't mean that the system shouldn't do things to make sure that you have opportunities to improve yourself, to redeem yourself, and to make your way in the world again once you get out. And that's a profound failure of the prison system. And even though Cameron Douglas seems to have made it out with lots of scars, lots of other folks can't make their way when they come out. Now, there are programs... From time to time in different places, that I think take that obligation more seriously to help people who are in prison bring themselves up. And one such program is at the Eastern New York Correctional Facility that is near, by happenstance, Bard College. And there is something called the Bard Prison Initiative, which offers college experiences to men who are incarcerated at Eastern New York. And there was a kind of a big deal story four years ago around this time that the Wall Street Journal reported on. Three people who were on the debate team, there's a debate team at Eastern New York, competed against, of all teams, three members of the Harvard College Debating Union. And after a rigorous debate on a public school issue, the veteran judges of that debate between three inmates and three Harvard College students was that the people who were in prison had won the debate. This week, the Wall Street Journal did an update on that story, describing where some of those folks in prison who won the debate against Harvard have gone. One of them left prison two years ago, graduated from Bard's program with a math major, ended up working on a congressman's bid to become the attorney general of the state of New York. Another finished his degree in applied mathematics and biology at Bard, worked as a math tutor, and now has a good job at an investment business in Midtown. The third has earned a bachelor's in social studies and a master's in professional studies, although he is not yet out of prison. At the time of the debate, which got a lot of attention, Outgoing education secretary Arnie Duncan said, someone should make a movie about this true story. Well, I don't know that a movie has been made, but there's a four-part documentary series on November 25th, executive produced by storied documentarian Ken Burns that profiles some of these men. So as we think about the issues raised by Cameron Douglas in his book, some of the issues I raise in my book, and the public discussion about what incarceration should be or should not be, how we can lower the rates of incarceration, how we can prepare people for life, think about whether or not we should have more programs like the BARD Initiative. Because as Brian Stevenson says, and as I repeat often, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Cameron Douglas. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag #AskPreet, or you can call and leave a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24 Preet. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. The audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Curlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm
0: Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.